you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, as we look at Jesus' I am the light of the world. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there is a pew Bible in front of you. It looks just like this. And you can turn to page 895, where John chapter 9 is, 895. And I am excited this morning to open to you this story of Jesus' about being the light of the world as we are on a seven-week study of wanting to know Christ. Paul said, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformed to him even in his death, that somehow I might attain the resurrection of the dead. And so for the next seven weeks... We'll take in order these statements, the I am's of Jesus. We'll, we'll pluck out the I am, the resurrection, and the life and put that last to coincide with Easter Sunday that we too might know him and the power of his resurrection. So today we're at number two then, I am the light of the world, John chapter 9. We've been talking about how when we get to know somebody, we go and we spend time with them and we tell ourselves we tell the other person about us, and they tell us about them, and, and we'll make I am statements, I am such and such, I like this and I like that, and this is how we get to know one another, and we spend time with one another. And this is what Jesus is saying, last week we talked about, he said, I'm the bread of life, and he wants you to know what it is that he's bread for you. Today he's saying, I am the light of the world, what does it mean that he's light? But you and I do this with each other. If I were to ask you, I'm going to ask you just a couple questions, I am statements. Uh, some of you are introverts and some of you are extroverts. You introverts can talk out in public, but it, you get energized when you need some alone time. If you're an introvert, let me just have you raise your hand. You can slip it up ever so quietly, <laughs> you introverts. Okay, if you're an extrovert, reach for the ceiling. Yeah, you love reaching high and tall. Extroverts. Yeah, turn to your neighbor. Say, I am, and then whichever one you are, introvert or extrovert. What about coffee? If you like coffee, raise a hand. Yeah, you got to get it. If you've had coffee this morning, and there's double hands. I saw that last service. There's more double hands. Nice. Okay, the, the, the more meek and mild. So if you're not a coffee person, this is me. You can raise your hand. How many non-coffee people are there? Oh, good. Some fellowship of sufferers. We are despised and scorned. Pastor Scott, when I came here, he said, we'll make you a coffee drinker. He said, within the first year, we'll make you a coffee drinker. I just don't like hot drinks, and coffee smells outstanding, but I just really can't stand the taste of it. Okay, one more we've got to do because we live in Oregon. We have Oregon universities in this place, and so let me see if you are a beaver fan, and you would root for beavers. Let's see your hands raised in the air. That is, you know, the first service you guys made noise too. Uh, what about duck fans? If, you're, if you would root for the ducks... And uh, we've got one double-handed person, so go ahead and tell your neighbor, I am a blank fan. <laughs> this is how we get to know one another. We tell each other things about ourselves. And it is no different with God. I'm convinced that we struggle to understand God as a person. And uh, there are a few mountains that are worth dying for in, uh, in church life, and I think this is one of them, that God is a person. And just like you and I can often treat one another, especially in those classic arguments between spouses or friends, and you conjecture what the other person's response is, and you have the argument in your head, and you, it all goes well until you sit down and the other person is there. 
And then they say things back, and they don't say what you thought they were going to say, and they don't see it the way you thought. And, and it's because where it's now that other individual is not just a figment of our imagination. We've not constructed them in our image, but they sit down across the table from us, and they are them. They're a real other person, and they get, their have to have to have, they get to have their own thoughts. They get to have their own feelings. They articulate, and, and they agree with you in some things and disagree with you in others. Jesus is a real person. God himself is a real person, and he is interested in getting to know you and I, and he says to us things about who he is. And we also build up figments in our imaginations about who God is, and we begin to relate to the God that we think is there and the way he would answer, and sometimes that's not who he is. He sometimes agrees with us, but other times he comes and says, no, I am this. This morning I want to talk to you about what it means when Jesus said in that first century setting to his disciples and in the crowds, I am the light of the world. He said it in John chapter 8 and verse 12 and then they had a long discussion about what that meant and it got a little controversial. But it isn't until John chapter 9 that we get an illustration of I am the light of the world. John chapter 9, we come then to Jesus' words. In order to hear what he means when he says, I am the light of the world, we need to hear his words here in John chapter 9. Let's read the first couple verses. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, and here's his phrase, I am the light of the world. So the first thing that Jesus does in opening up this idea, he'd said it already, and now he's signaling that he's about to show us what this means. So we want to know Christ. Let's pay attention to this illustration. We may be surprised at the things God is saying when he means, I am the light of the world. But here's what it is. The first thing is some of his words. There's an assumption that we have and we share with first century rabbis who taught that suffering is always a result of sin, and Jesus disagrees with that. We have a tendency to think that suffering is always a result of sin. What have I done wrong for such and such to be happening to me? What did this person do wrong for such and such? The friends of Job comes to him and says, you must be hiding something that you've done wrong for such and such to happen to you. It is a natural assumption, and yet Jesus even affirmed it in John chapter 5 when he healed one man, and then he said to him, go and sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And so there is sometimes truth in it, but it is not always the case. And that's important for us to understand because you and I can tend to be a little hard on ourselves and on others when it comes to suffering. And Jesus says, not always is it result of sin. There's a second assumption he speaks against, and then he's going to illustrate as the story moves on, and that is suffering brings only darkness. There's a tendency to think that suffering brings only darkness. It is an evil. It is not a good thing. And there is a sense in which suffering has come into the world in general as a result of sins, but it isn't only something that leads to darkness. There are also other things it brings. In fact, Jesus is going to show that in his hands... It brings light. And so he, he speaks against this idea, suffering brings only darkness. It isn't just blindness that is at stake in this story. Well, let's go on in the story. Jesus' work then, the next two verses, verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, 
It's a little strange. And made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Not only was the man sent to Siloam, and the sending had to do with how they had orchestrated the river to come and fill up the pool, but Jesus himself was sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus' work. Jesus actually comes to this blind person, and to illustrate that he's the light of the world, he heals him. He restores eyesight so the man can see the sunshine for the first time in his life. He can see light and by it see the world. He would never seen his parents. He sees his parents for the first time. He perhaps was married. He may or may not have been. But he saw his friends or family or loved ones for the first time. The neighbors that come up in the story, he sees them for the first time. His sight is restored to him. There's some mystery here with the mud pack, and we're going to open that up just a little bit later. It's a little bit of a strange way to bring about sight, but... We'll we'll show why that is the case in just a moment. So when he says, I am the light of the world, he first of all means that I'm going to clarify things even about suffering and darkness. Second, he's going to bring light into the world itself, even literally the light of the world to men's eyes. But then third then, where the story begins to get interesting, Jesus' withdrawal and perhaps watching even, starting in verse 8 through 34. Here's the interesting part of the story. Here's the bulk of the story. Now, at this point, if we skipped verses 8 through 34 and just snipped them out of our Bibles, we would have the story of the man's eyesight returned to him. And then Jesus comes to him and he says, Do you know who the Son of Man is? And this is where we're picking up in verse 35. And he says, I don't know. Who is he? Well, he's talking to you. Do you believe in him? Yes, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. And Jesus said, His eyes have been opened. That would have been a great parable. That would have been a great story. That would have been a good illustration. But Jesus meant more when he said, I am the light of the world. When you and I hear him say he's the light of the world, we see the story that he healed the blind man, we think, "Uh uh-huh, I know what you're getting at, Jesus. You're the light of the world. You gave light to this man's eyes. But he says, well, yes, that's true, but now let's go a little further into the story. Starting in verse 8 then. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others said, No, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? And they argue with him. This man, after having his sight restored, the greatest day of his life up until that point, he goes to his friends expecting a celebration as would you and I had you won the lottery, had you had an ailment from birth that debilitated you for all of life and it was suddenly restored, you would go to your friends and family and you would tell them expecting them for jump up, to jump up for joy with you, to weep for joy with you, you would expect them to join you in your rejoicing. And yet these friends of his, these neighbors began to resist him. And so he had unexpected suffering that was beginning. Unexpected suffering. He had suffered with his eyesight. It was healed. He expected joy. But then he comes, and in the first place, he finds it with his friends that there's resistance. He comes, and where he should have found joy and support, 
rejoicing and congratulations, he finds resistance by his friends. And he gets a little angry and irritated. He kept saying, I know I am the one. His friends, they should have known him. It's how meaningless he was that they could walk by him and now they don't even recognize him. You can imagine his feelings beginning to be hurt a bit, but he's not going to be dampened too great because he's got his sight back. But then, secondly, the Pharisees hear about it and they begin to question him. And they said, well, let's get a hold of his parents. And so they call his parents. And they call his parents and begin to question him. And he runs into a second round of suffering from his parents, his family, who betray him. His family, who should have been the supporters of him, even more than his friends. His family, who should have been the ones who defend and protect him. The family where it says blood is thicker than water should have been the one that we're going to hang together even if your friends don't. That's what families are somewhat for. And they don't do that. It says in the storyline that they had heard from the synagogue that whoever confessed that Jesus was the Christ would be kicked out of the synagogue. And the parents, being frankly cowards, They said, well, go ask him. He's of age, which meant he was at least 32 years old. You think at 18 years old, kids, you reach it. In the first century, you had to be 32 to be considered of age. He was of age, and he was pushed by his parents and said, go ask him. And so he experienced this betrayal. Do you think that felt good? He has his eyesight restored. He sees his parents for the first time. Controversy comes up. What's happened to you? And his parents, instead of standing next to him with one arm on each side of him, or perhaps even in front of him with the religious leaders, as if you're going to have to come through me to get to him. That would be normal parental response. But no, they push him out and say, you're on your own, buddy. And there's a betrayal and a hurt in that. And so he's called then before the religious leaders. He's called then to another level in which he experiences unexpected suffering because now he's before the church leaders. It says the Pharisees earlier, but at this point it moves in and says the Jews themselves. It's it's trying to disengage the story, not just the, the same old controversy that the Pharisees had, but it's with Jesus, but it's a little bit bigger. It's just simply the religious leaders. He faces with the religious leaders now rejection. Unexpected suffering from friends where he got resistance. Unexpected suffering from family where he found betrayal. But now he's experiencing unexpected suffering from the leaders of the synagogue or the church where he finds rejection. And they push and they poke at him and they want to know what's going on and they begin to have a heated exchange. He's not only hurt now, But he's becoming angry. He's becoming angry at how he's being treated because it's unjust. And so they said, he says back to them, the man answered, verse 30, why this is an amazing thing. You can listen for the snarkiness. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone 
open the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Their response, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. Remember that assumption earlier? And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Unexpected suffering. There's more about this part of the man's story than there is about him being healed from blindness. Why is that? Because when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he means a lot more than the healing of this blind man's eyes. He means what happens to this man with his friends, his family, and even the leaders of his church. Now, there's probably not a person in here who hasn't had difficulty with their friends. Everybody has difficulty with their friends, and it hurts. Some difficulties are small, and they go away. Some are large, and they stay, and some never go away. Those are hurtful things that plague our lives. Some of you have even had difficulties with family members. The very families that were entrusted to you and you to them in order to be protection and care have become sources of pain themselves, sources of betrayal and of rejection. And so that you carry around with you and your relationships with your family an unexpected suffering. And we're going to explore what Jesus means by illustrating this in this way. But for now, let's just note that it happens. And it's happened to some of you, and you still carry it with you. Some of them have been resolved. Some of them are just kind of tender and fragile still. Some of them are still unresolved. You may even be estranged from family. Sometimes there are things you did. Sometimes there's things you didn't do. It can be all kinds of things, but there is suffering with family and betrayal. There's suffering with churches. I've had the opportunity to meet with some of you, and, and I remember meeting with a couple that's in this church, and they had gone to another church previously and experienced something very damaging and hurtful, so much so that when they came and joined our church, they sat on the edges for a season, a good long season, because they were hurt. They had experienced betrayal and hurt in a church setting by brothers and sisters, by church leaders. Now, we're not talking about friends and family and church leaders this morning and the evils that can happen from them. That's not what this message is about. This is about the unexpected sufferings of this man and the things that you and I can experience. How is Jesus the light of the world in those settings? Because he's trying to say something about that. And so some of you have experienced suffering even at the hands of churches. And you have deep wounds that you carry with you. What? Is God intending by allowing such things? What does he intend by allowing such things? Let's move on because we're going to come back to this just a little bit. We'll move on to the fourth point is this. Jesus' deeper work. Verse 35 through 38. His deeper work. When Jesus heard that they had cast him out. That's why I said withdrawal but watching. You get the sense that Jesus was on the edge of this story, even though he has walked away from it, there's one story here, and Jesus is thread through it, and that middle section, he's not present, but you get the sense that he's right there, that this is his hand at work in here. His deeper work then, verse 35, he heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus' deeper work, the story goes on, the illustration of his sentence, so that you and I could know him, I am the light of the world. His deeper work is restoring soul sight by seeing the Son, S-O-N. 
The first part of it, he restores eyesight. But the book of Ephesians in the scriptures tell us that there are the eyes of the heart. That Paul prays for the church people that you and I pray together. We've sung this morning and in other songs that the eyes of our hearts may be open. There are something called the eyes of the heart. And I've called it here soul sight. The deeper work that Jesus communicated and meant when he said, I'm the light of the world, is that he opened the man's eyes at another level so that he could see him, the Son of Man. And so I would suggest that those verses 9, 8 through verse 34, the friends and family and even the religious leaders' rejection, all the suffering that went in there was all leading up to this point here, this deeper work, where suffering brings Jesus into focus. Suffering brings Jesus into focus. This is the heartbeat of the mud pack. This is what it means. You read commentators, and some will talk about the healing powers of saliva. So go spit on each other's faces if you want real health. They'll talk about the mud and the salt of the Palestinian sands. I don't think that's what it's meaning at all. There's no healing benefit for spit and mud rubbed on blind eyes. It only obscures and darkens even though there was blindness. What is meant by that is that Jesus is further darkening the man's vision before he brings healing and life. And so what he does to this man, as he gets his eyes back, Jesus is after a far greater miracle in what he sees with his soul eyes. And so he brings him into obscurity, into frustration, into hurt, into doubt, into betrayal, into resistance, into rejection, and that never feels good, and that is never clear, and that is never soul uplifting to anybody. And this man is beaten and broken, and he's covered with mud, so to speak, not realizing that this is going to be washed off in the pool of Siloam, the pool that means sent, the one sent by Jesus himself, Jesus who is the sent one, will wash away this mud of suffering from this man's soul eyes so he can see the Son of Man. That's what it means. Suffering brings Jesus into focus. Look at the words there that I put at the bottom of your notes. These are the words in order of their appearance of how the man related and spoke about Jesus. First, he says, when the friends asked him, who was it? He said, the man called Jesus. Next, as the conversation gets meatier and tougher, he says, he is a prophet. Then he says, he is from God. And then when Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You see what happens to this individual through this process of these suffering relationships is he grows in his vision of seeing who Jesus is until he finally has his sight restored to him. I've asked myself, how does this happen? How This is obviously the point of the story. You've got a few couple verses that he's born blind and his eyes are opened up. Then you've got this strange mud thing. Then you've got this big, long section where everybody's mad at him. And at the end of that, he sees Jesus. Clearly, that's what the story's about. But how does it work? How does God do it? How do you do it in this man's life? How does he do it in your life and mine? I thought about bringing up here, but I was probably too lazy to make it all work out. Different kinds of hammers. We could bring in a little, one of our, a home hammer, we'll call it. The little short ones with the curled in little thing. 
I was talking to one of the contractors in our church today uh, in here some time ago, and he said when he was a young man, he, he went to the job site with one of those small house hammers. And the men laughed at him and said, use a real hammer, and they gave him one of those big, long ones, heavy. I don't remember how many ounces, but they probably weigh twice as much. A real hammer. We, we, could, we could have a mallet up here, a short-handled, long one, a mallet. We could have a sledgehammer, big old sledgehammer with a big 10-pound thing. There's all kinds of hammers, but you know what suffering is in the hands of God? It is a hammer appropriate to the situation and the person. It is a hammer by which he kind of taps and bangs on us a little bit. Because he's intent on breaking the clay and the darkness that is hardened, the mud that has covered the eyes of our souls, that has encased us to where we become oblivious to what God is doing in the world. And the soul eyes are no longer able to see whether you use the analogy that they're born blind or you use the analogy you're covered in mud. God begins to beat away at it. And it is a little difficult. This illustration, by the way, is from Jeremiah's, just so you can know that the hammer thing was from the Bible. He says his word is like a hammer. He says his word is like a hammer. I'm convinced that he began to hammer away at this man, starting with his friends. Tap, tap, tap. Moving to his family. Those are some big hurts there. Bang, bang, bang. The church family, which in some sense, in some cases, even closer than our own uh, biological families. Smash, smash, smash. Breaking this man down and apart to where he has a desperate need and a capacity now to see Jesus. The deeper work. And then he moves, and we'll just say briefly the deeper words here that he ends with. Verses 39 through 41, and then we'll move to implications. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. Not one we preach on very often, it's the hard one. Especially this following, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is a tough passage, and uh, I'm not going to spend very much time on it because I don't think it's a real point, but I want to wrap it up with this because this is the illustration that Jesus' deeper words now have to do with true blindness. True sight and true blindness, but in this case, true blindness He's comparing this man who was born blind and his friends and his family and the religious people in the synagogue, they could all see. But now his eyes are open and as they begin to engage, what you realize is the story tells the opposite, that this man ends up having his sight restored and can see Jesus, but the friends don't see it, the family doesn't see it, and the religious leaders are blind as well. True blindness of soul. True sight of soul. This really is what the story that illustrates I am the light of the world is all about. Soul sight and soul blindness. I've put a couple illustrations down here because it almost seems as if the things that are our greatest strengths become the place where we have the greatest temptation to blindness. And so those who are poor are able to see and whereas those who have wealth it becomes blinding. Those who are sick are able to draw near to Jesus in their sickness, whereas those who are healthy have less need to do so. And in this case, those who are blind have a need for Jesus, and those who can see are not aware. They cannot see their own need to see him. 
And so there's true blindness. But now then, let's move then to this. What is he saying? The implications of this story, as the light of the world, Jesus is what? When he says and he leans over in the pew next to you, and he says, I am the light of the world. That's what he's doing. You want to know him? He wants to know you. He says, well, here's what I'm like. Here's who I am. I'm the light of the world. Here's some of the things he means. The first is this, removing darkness. Jesus is removing darkness from our broken world. Back in verse, chapter 1 and verse 5, it said this. When Jesus came into the world, it said, Light has come into the world, and the darkness could not withstand it. Light has come into the world, and the darkness could not withstand it. When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he means that he is removing darkness from this broken world. He removed the blindness of this man's physical eyes. He removed the soul blindness, but let's just glory in the fact that he removed the blindness from this man's eyes. It is the intention of Jesus over the course of time to remove and to heal the things that are broken in our world. And that's a good thing. It's not all that he means. It's not all that that phrase means, but it is part of what it means. And so you and I are encouraged If you're blind or if you have sickness, if you have circumstances that are uh, availed against you, to seek the Lord for his restoration of those things. That's what it means partly, that he was the light of the world, that he would come in and shed light and remove darkness from our world, that he would speak what is true to us. He would tell you if you suffer, it may be because of your sins and it may not, but he will speak truth to you. The second thing is this, as the light of the world, Jesus is restoring health for the lost purposes of Eden. This whole story of Eden captivates our imagination as it did the first century because it is the original intention of God for our lives and for the world. This idea that we were made to image God and to expand the paradise of God throughout the globe, exercising dominion and oversight in the development of this world for the praise and glory of God and the enjoyment of us, is the whole intention of Scripture, and that's what God sent Jesus to restore. If you and I were to look at life since the risen Christ when he's been crowned king, you know there's a new king in the land, right? He's, he's, he's been a couple thousand years. It's, it's still relatively new news. But there's a new king in the land, and that is named Jesus. And he is restoring to the land what was lost. He's restoring to his people what was lost. He's restoring to the world what was lost. And if you and I just look at a decade or two, we might not see that. But if we step back and look at 2,000 years, 2,000 years worth of the reign of the King of Jesus, what we will find is that we will find a slow progression of God transforming the world. As we stand here today, we have stood, stood here, and some of you were engaged in World War II. I don't believe any of us now are with us from World War I. There may be a person or two, but I don't even think there is in our community here. Some of you may remember World War II. Those are devastating decades. It seems as if the, the progress of the restoration of the world has come to a halt or even slid backwards, as if things are off their rocker a bit. But if we step back from looking at things just through the lens of a decade or two, and we look at centuries of time, what we experience today is an improved rejuvenated, renewed world in comparison to a 1,000 years ago, in comparison to 2,000 years ago. The treatment of men and women and children, the treatment of people groups is much improved. There are still places of great cruelty. There are still great 
places of harshness. The, the relative wealth and prosperity and the ability to pay for things and to live life has greatly improved from 1,000, 2,000 years ago. The ability to read and to gather knowledge, the ability to have our health restored, the, the average mortality rate of the lifespan of individuals has greatly increased. Even the, the mortality rate of, of young children that are born and how many would die at birth as the world has gone through 2,000 years, we live at a time it's never been better. It's never been better. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world and he has come in to push back darkness and to restore the original intention of mankind. Now, if you and I just get caught up in a decade perspective, we will not see this. We will only see the sorrows that press us and stare at us in the face today. But if we step back and look at long sweeps of time, it is tremendous what God has done in the world over 2,000 years. It's tremendous how the King of Kings is weeding things in the garden, so to speak. Making things more bright and beautiful. And so he's restoring health as the light of the world. But now we get then to the heartbeat, I think, of this story, the implications. The things that are even more true when he says, I am the light of the world. More true than restoring to this man's sight, uh, vision. The third point is this. As the light of the world, Jesus is reflecting God to spirit, blurry vision. He's reflecting God to spirit, blurry vision. You and I have blurry vision. We don't see well. We don't see the reality of what is in front of us. Let me read to you from, first, from John chapter 1. A few verses that talk about this Jesus coming into the world. The true light, verse 9, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Here it is. Yet the world did not know him. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet it did not know him. That's, that's blurry vision, folks. He came to his own. What he means by that is the Jewish people, those that had been set aside by covenant, told that this Messiah was coming. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's, that's blindness. That's not being able to see the moves of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Reflecting God to spirit blurry vision. I am convinced that we don't realize how much we don't see. You'll remember that old story when Elijah says to uh, Elisha, open his eyes that he might see and he opens his eyes in the face of an army attacking them that on the mountains are angelic hosts, an army of God. We don't see what is in this room right now. You see the beige pews, you feel them, you see the people next to you, but we don't see the spirits that occupy all over this space. And I'm convinced, and we said it last week with the bread of life, that Jesus is also here but we don't see him easily. That Jesus is here working his way through the pews. By his spirit, he's in all pews at all time, but I kind of like to see him walking through and touching you and your minds and your hearts and speaking words to you, 
that are connected to here. One of the funniest things about preaching is you think God's going to use the words you say and you only find out he says things to you that nobody even said in this morning. <laughs> he just walks through speaking to you, showing himself to you, opening some kind of eyes that are not able to easily see. We have a blurry vision to the world of God around us. It says in the book of Revelation, when he writes to the seven churches, he says, I am a lampstand in your midst. I am in the middle of you like a candle with light glowing and shedding light in the very center of who you are. And I believe that that's true of all churches. I believe it's true of our church. I believe that Jesus is here right now as the light of the world, as a lampstand in our church. And yet you and I look around and if we had to point where uh, we don't easily get what this means. We don't easily get who God is. We come to church and we think, I'm more confused than when I came in the first place. Because our have a blindness, we have a blindness over our hearts and minds, our eyes towards God. And so Jesus, when he says, I'm the light of the world, here's what he means. I've come to reflect God to you. I know you have blurry vision. I've come to show you God. I've come to restore sight to you. And now here's, here's how he does it then. The fourth one, this. As the light of the world, Jesus is repurposing suffering as corrective surgery. Repurposing suffering as corrective surgery. Some of you have had corrective surgery. You've had problems with your eyesight. You've gone to a doctor. Medicine has advanced to such that they can actually cut things, do things you can see. I thought about bringing, I've had cataract surgery. When I was 26, I got type 1 diabetes. Blood sugar got in my lenses. They swelled up like cotton, and I went blind in both eyes. Tried every natural thing I could do, because once you have cataract surgery, there's no going back. And I thought about bringing it, but it's on an old cassette, and it's a little tough. But it's a pretty impressive. It was so rare that up in the uh, windows above the operating room, all the other doctors of the Laser and Cataract Institute came to watch this one, because it was pretty unusual. So they flatten the eye, and, and, and then they poke in, and, and they put a little jackhammer. And you can see this all in video. And this little jackhammer breaks up, breaks up the lens, breaks up and shatters it. And then they stick in another thing. It's got like a vacuum cleaner, and then it sucks all the lens out. And all of a sudden, and where I had this milky, so those of you that are older and have had cataract surgeries, yours are, are dark brown and dark and hard. Mine was soft and white because I was a young guy, and it was a different kind. But it was nevertheless over my brown eyes. And, and as that white got broken up and sucked out, all of a sudden there was the eye. And I could see. I could see the very same day when we drove home. I hadn't seen hills in a long... I, I started to cry. I hadn't seen trees. You know how beautiful a tree is? To come up out of the ground. I hadn't seen things distance. I hadn't seen depth. I hadn't seen red. Apparently, I learned red is the first color you lose when you go blind because of where it is on the spectrum. And I hadn't seen red, and I remember looking at an Adam's peanut butter jar <laughs> and thinking, oh, my goodness, this red is so stunning, so deep and beautiful. That's, that's the first day after cataract surgery. 
Jesus intends to use suffering as a corrective surgery to our souls to see. Listen to these words from 1 Peter. Chapter 6, In this ye rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation when he returns, that's in mind here, but I think there are many revelations of Jesus in our lives. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, he's talking about these eyes, you love him, he's talking about these eyes, and this is the result of the various trials and tribulations. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him, that's these eyes, and not just believe him like I have to, the most reluctant convert in all of England kind of belief, but because rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Here's what I think the whole illustration of I am the light of the world is, is that Jesus with this man, he heals these eyes, but then he says, I want you to see, and he tells a larger story of how I healed these eyes, and he uses suffering to do it. Suffering to break the man open so that he would be in a condition of being able to see Jesus. He breaks his heart open with corrective surgery. I tell you the truth, that as I've looked back on my own life, I have identified three great periods in my life, three great periods in which I had trials, deep, deep trials. Those were the three great periods of growth, brothers and sisters. Those were the growth spurts. Those were the times I hated the most, and there were the times on looking back in which I grew the most. Three distinct periods. Unfortunately, they lasted a few years each. They were so terrible and awful. But when I look back on them, those are the times when I saw Jesus. Those are the times when I saw him and I heard from him and I made gains on things I'd been praying about and striving for for years and had made very little progress with my own heart, with faith, with trust, with prayer, with dependence, with joy, and found in Jesus something in the deep pain and hurt of trial. I even thought at one point after the third one had come and gone, I thought to myself, boy, I don't know what else could happen. That's really bad. And, and I just prayed, Lord, please don't take my wife. Don't take one of my kids. I don't know if I could make it if you do that. But I thought to myself, I don't know. But I'll tell you the truth. If I'm going to grow again, if I'm going to see Jesus again in deep ways, it's going to come through suffering. It's going to come through corrective surgery repurposing suffering as corrective surgery. And the last point is this, then, revealing himself through suffering. Let's have the worship team come on up. This is what it's all aimed at. He is the light of the world. He is the light of the world, and he has one intention, and that is to show himself to you. When he comes to this blind man, he heals his blindness and then disappears from the scene in order to bring about this great trial. This great trial from friends and family and religious leaders. Rejection and betrayal and resistance of those whom he loved and who loved him. And it hurt deeply, but in doing so, he began to see Jesus. So significant is this. So significant is this point in Scripture. Whether you think of Joseph, who says to his brothers, you did this for evil, but God meant it for good. 
Or it's Job who is accused of doing wrong and he says, no, I didn't. And at the end, he sees God. Or it's David who has been anointed to be king, but he won't lift his hand against Saul, even though Saul is throwing spears at him. He writes all then the Psalms that have his heart seeking after God. All through the scriptures you have this to where even in the book of Hebrews it says this. Some of the Lord's people were persecuted and even laid on racks and stretched in torture. But such was the consolation and vision of Jesus to their mind's eye that they asked not to be removed so that they would keep what they had gotten from God. Oh my goodness. Not to be removed from this intense trial because they had Jesus in the midst of it. Can you imagine Stephen as the stones are flying and they say, no, stop. I can almost imagine that he'd say, don't stop. Because of this, what it takes for me to see in the heavens, Jesus at the right hand of God. Don't stop. So much so that James writes in the first century, count it all joy, my beloved brothers. Now here's the dilemma. When we're in such opposition from friends and family, these are relational things. He had circumstantial with his blindness. But now the heartbeat of the story is with other people. When there's such opposition, when there's such opposition, and we have been tempted to become angry and hardened in our heart, the last thing we want to hear is such a phrase, count it all joy. That's the last thing we want anybody, whether in church or outside of church, is to say, count it all joy, brothers. But when you have begun to see Jesus and taste of Him, when you have begun to see Jesus and find Him as you've had to turn your back from friends and family and loved ones that have hurt you and are hurting you and say, Jesus, you're my comfort and you find Him glorious in your vision that the rain comes from heaven and does wipe the eyes away. When you experience that, when you experience that, you begin to count it joy. You begin to say, I'll take this. As much as this stinks and this hurts and I don't want this, I'm getting Jesus in it. And I'll take it. And you can find joy. There is a joy to be found in the light of the world as he opens our eyes. And so we have a special song that we're going to end with this morning. It is a joy song. It is a song that's going to ask you to clap. It is a song that's going to ask you to rejoice. It's a song that's going to ask you to feel lighthearted. How can you, if you're in the midst of suffering, if you have Jesus? If you see Jesus, I'm going to ask you to stand. I don't want to ask you by faith. Let's stand together. We'll say it again. Let's stand together. Let's step into this with all of the joy that comes from seeing Jesus. Jesus.